There's a song we used to sing in nearly every place I ever pastored, and we still sing it pretty often. It says, Let us grant each other mercy and be lavish with our love. Let us help each other conquer fears we long to rise above. Let us guard each other's hopes and dreams as if they were our own while we're on our separate journeys to the Father's throne. I don't remember ever singing it without the awareness of a deep longing awakening in at least some of the people present, hopefully in everyone old enough to understand the gravity of the meaning of those lyrics. Because not one word of that song can be accomplished in an hour-long Sunday morning meeting with people looking at the back of each other's heads and sitting and listening to somebody talk. The title of the song is Separate Journeys, but the heart of that song refers to all we have been examining in this study. How do we guard each other's hopes and dreams in a church service? Hopes and dreams are not for a snapshot. They deal with all of a lifetime. And it doesn't refer to shallow good morning, how are you niceties that usually take place in such meetings. And I'm not disregarding the value of Sunday morning meetings, I'm just asking an obvious question. I can't guard your hopes and dreams unless I know them, and I can't know them unless we have somehow forged out a relationship in which you felt you could entrust to me such knowledge. How can I sing about helping you overcome fears you long to rise above unless we're somehow doing life together? I have to be with you and have a fully affectionate care for you if I'm going to be able to help you overcome a life-inhibiting struggle like the one the song talks about. Now, whenever we sing that song, everybody in the room understands that none of us has the capacity to relate to and care for everyone in the room on that level Jesus himself only related that closely with 12, and of the 12, only three extremely closely, and of the three, only one in the closest and most intimate ways. So we all understand as we sing that it has to be understood in the context of what our capacities are. But at the same time, we also understand that it cannot and must not be a mere sentimental lyric we sing but have no intention of ever doing There's a phrase almost completely unknown by previous generations which has become very common with folks born since 1980 or so. They speak of doing life together. I just used that very phrase a few moments ago. Sadly, in some circles, that statement represents a kind of rootless wandering from relationship to relationship or for those too damaged to even attempt real relationships It may mean a perpetual adolescence where life is one ongoing party with all sense of adult responsibility seemingly put on continuous hold. Life is just a replay of a TV sitcom with scenarios of young adults, at least chronologically young adults, with no meaning, no no meaningful commitments, no meaningful connections, just shallow present company. No one knows why they exist, where they're headed, or what they're going to do when they get there. But even though they don't know what life is about, they are, quote, doing life together. Now, thankfully, that's not the only scenario in that age group. There are many who refer to doing life together, and what they mean is they they know they can't live in isolation but they are afraid of building life like the ones they saw their parents build and then fall apart, where in their eyes love is in short supply. Materialism obviously doesn't fill the void, and the longing for meaning and bonds that last are still fully awake in them, even if the traditions of the previous generation no longer attracts them as having any answers. They are hungry for something that they can't find on the menu of life anymore. 
And so they're trying to create it by doing life together. Now, what I see in that age group, and I'm not saying this to be critical, and I certainly don't mean it to sound condescending. It's just an observation that many of them have lots of relationships, but none of those relationships are deep enough to grow roots that can produce trees of righteousness that last. Proverbs 18.24 says, A man with too many friends may come to ruin, for he must be friendly to all of them. But there is a real friend that sticks closer than a brother. This verse is often quoted as if it's referring to the Lord Jesus as the friend that sticks closer than a brother. And there's nothing wrong with that spin on that verse, but that's not what the verse is talking about. Jesus does far more than merely stick to us closer than a brother. No brother or close friend can save, forgive, deliver, heal, sanctify, and come and live inside me and transform me into his very likeness and then take me to glory. So yeah, Jesus does stick closer than a brother, but that's a huge understatement when referring to the Lord Jesus Christ. No, this verse is simply pointing out the very human reality that if we have too many of what we may call close friends, we may get ourselves into trouble if we are called upon to give more than we are actually able to give. But there's a kind of friend that will give no matter what it takes, and he sticks to you closer than a natural human brother. And it's also referring to the fact that there are different levels of relationship. And that's a study that's beyond our present one. If you want to pursue that, we have two hours of lecture on it in our tape library called Men and Relationships. <clears throat> Ladies, you may find something of value in it too, but I address it mostly to men because men seem to have more difficulty in this subject than women do. We all, I hope, know the difference between casual friendships and the soul-bonding friendships of, say, a David and a Jonathan or a Ruth and Naomi. Those close, deep bonds of friendship are forged by going through fires together. And a casual third party cannot enter into that kind of relationship with two people who have already gone through the fire together unless he somehow goes through the same fire with the same two people and comes out bonded by the flame. But if we limit ourselves only to the subject of friendship, we will find ourselves limited in any means of addressing the emptiness and loneliness that is this present culture. Friendship is an important subject, but the Bible doesn't use friendship to describe the church necessarily, although friendship is inside the context of the church. It uses the image not so much of friendship only, but of the entire family. God sets the lonely into families, and there in that context of the family of God, he breaks off our chains and sets us free to prosper and grow and develop and mature. So the real life of the family of God will manifest in a redemptive replay of whatever was lost or damaged in our early family of origin, which is, I guess, why we're so afraid to engage it. Yet, it has to be engaged. Not necessarily, of course, that you have to re-experience whatever negative event is wounding you, but in some cases, you have to re-encounter it enough for you to deal with it in prayer and work through it instead of try to run around it or go backwards away from it and thus hinder your development and maturity. So the real life of the family of God will manifest in a redemptive replay. Notice a redemptive replay of whatever was lost in our damaged or early life. We tend to try to recreate the scenario of our broken past in a, in a doomed hope of fixing things. But the Lord recreates a scenario of our past in a redemptive, joyful, healing way. Again, we examine this in some detail as Jesus recreates the first time he met Peter after Peter had finished fishing all night and had caught nothing. Then Peter returns to the boats again after the resurrection. And Jesus 
re-establishes the scenario. Peter has fished all night and caught nothing. Then Jesus also reestablishes the last time Peter and Jesus were together at a campfire. When Peter denies three times that he even knows the Lord, Jesus, sitting by a campfire after the resurrection, asks Peter three times, do you love me? Psychologists tell us that of all the powerful stimulants that resurrect buried emotions, smell is the most powerful, but place is right next to it in line as the most effective means of getting us in touch with inner emotions and buried memories. Jesus takes us back to the place, so to speak, every time he arranges encounters in the body of Christ with people or with circumstances who may represent our own past, our own childhoods, whether it's hurts and losses and mistreatments and disappointments or the positive side of that, the, the good things that we either need to have strengthened in us or the good things that we never even enjoyed at all and are lacking from. And what we think are injuries sometimes, God brings us back and reestablishes a different point of view about the circumstance maybe. There's lots of different versions of that and we'll hopefully look at some of those later but tell us stories where we feel like we've been here before or this feels way too familiar. One story that always comes to mind is told by a friend of ours, a lady who has been a spiritual mother to many and who has walked with the Lord since her childhood. But many years ago, she describes having been in a church situation where women were often mistreated in the name of submission. She was faithful to the Lord in her relationships and would not back away when she was convinced of the truth in a situation. So she she took her place to stand beside a young woman who had been falsely accused and wrongly treated. The situation came before the leaders of her church, and she was assured that if she would take her stand in bringing out the truth, that the men related to the situation would all stand with her and make sure that things were done right. But the opposite happened. She was not only attacked by the so-called elders, but all the men who had promised to stand with her joined in until there was no way to recover the situation. Both she and the accused woman, thankfully, fled the sick church and eventually came to some degree of recovery. But about the time I met her, she was finding herself in a very similar situation. One she considered far too familiar for her own good, she thought. But this time, it was for her own good. The Lord had set it up. This time, godly men with real integrity came to her defense and not only stood by her, but strongly refuted those who were guilty of rumor-mongering and mishandling of their authority. It was a win all the way around, even for those who had to be rebuked, because eventually even they repented. So the wound in her that had only been partially healed became fully healed, and in that area of spiritual battle, she became far more discerning and stronger because of it. I offer this difficult story in hopes that we will keep in mind that we can't imagine when we talk about the healing community of the body of Christ that it will be easy or without struggle or that the enemy won't do all in his power to destroy something that is so greatly useful in destroying him. We can't grow without pressure and resistance. But remember that the God-ordained pattern Weeping for the night, joy comes in the morning. Sowing in tears, reaping in joy. Now you don't see me now and you're in sorrow. Then you will see me and nothing will be able to take your joy from you. The spiritual dynamic of trial that soon gives way to triumph is God's way of building joy strength in us. Now on the more enjoyable side of that, a functioning body of believers in Jesus who are actively, mindfully seeking to live in love and joy and peace on purpose can have a powerful effect on the healing of both types of woundedness, both type B, bad things that have happened to us, like the lady we just described, but then also, maybe even more so, healing type A wounds, those caused by the absence of things we needed in order to thrive and grow strong. 
This healing bond of filling the empty places in us where our family of origin failed is sometimes referred to as reparenting. Now that term gained notoriety in the early days of the therapeutic movement of the western end of the United States in the 1980s. And it has some problems with it due to the humanistic godlessness of its philosophy. But the church needn't throw the baby out with the bathwater, as we are so often guilty of doing. In spite of many wrong-headed ideas about reparenting that left emotionally immature people becoming idolized or idolizing uh, mere human beings and ended up creating lots of confusion and many emotionally and even sexually destructive relationships came from that. Still, there's plenty of scriptural examples of people who are being blessed and strengthened by relating to others in what we can only call a parental way. Now, before we get more into the dynamics of all this, let's stop and take stock of some basic facts. Let's just settle this truth. We all have issues in us that are unfinished in our development. There's no way to disconnect spiritual maturity from emotional maturity. It will take a family for us to truly grow and heal. You can't do it in isolation. It will take giving and receiving, like number 12 of the 12 steps of the 12-step programs. There has to come a point when you no longer are focusing on your own brokenness, but you're learning to give and receive in the process. Counseling therapy is helpful to get at roots and guide toward healing. But if we are only real in a counseling situation, we will atrophy or fall backwards. Pastoral relationships and mentoring are helpful in many ways. But without whole family dynamics, we will still have developmental gaps. Intergenerational bonding is what the church is about. God sets the lonely into families, and there he sets them free and breaks their chains. And the Bible recognizes six categories of developmental stages of human life. Pre-birth, in Luke chapter 1, verse 44. Infancy, in Psalms 8, verse 2. The child, in Mark chapter 10, verses 13 through 15. The adult in Ephesians 4, 12 through 17. The parent in John 16, 21. And eldership in Acts 20, verse 24. It's, by the way, kind of noteworthy, isn't it, that there's no category for adolescent or for teenager in that list. This understanding of life community of believers when practiced according to the New Testament pattern makes a full place for widows, for orphans, for the childless, the solitary, the elderly, singles who need to be met within the dynamics of daily life, not just in church services, whether their singleness is from never marrying or widowhood or divorce or some sexual wound that keeps them from being able to build their own family. It is not going to church but being the church 24-7 that will produce this kind of healing dynamic. Not living under the same roof necessarily, but living with a deep awareness of close heart bonds that are so embedded within the soul, meaning also the brain, that you're not alone even when you are alone. To be together is joy, and then when the joy is full, to be alone is peace, both because of love. The power of a fully-orbed church community to heal is found among those who have enough joy strength needed to exceed the amount of pain that will happen when we face our recovery issues. For in the community, no one is responsible for any single person's entire recovery. We all bear one another's small burdens, Galatians chapter 6, verse 2 says, so that we each then are strengthened in order to be able to carry his own load, again, Galatians chapter 6. 
This obviously refers to a community in which every joint is supplying whatever may be lacking in the other who lacks it. In this way, where I'm strong, I have to bear my own burden or do my part, and where I'm weak, another who is strong in that particular area helps me. So none of us are to ever judge or dishonor one another for his weaknesses. The Galatians could not have helped anyone in Corinth because of their legalism. When we live like this, the whole body fitly joined together builds up itself in love. Picture of this is so clear in Nehemiah and the rebuilding of the broken walls of Jerusalem, which is a picture of the rebuilding of the broken lives of Christians. Uh, we have a complete study on that, and I, I wish I could take off on it right now because Nehemiah's story is not only a meaningful story in itself in the historic setting of the rebuilding of the wall of Jerusalem, but it is an amazing parable, perfectly picturing uh, the, the reconstruction of broken lives in union with one another. Nehemiah chapter 4 verse 10 says, The strength of the burden bearers is decayed and there's still so much rubbish. And there comes a time when the, the burden bearers, which in most churches are the professional clergy, they, they run out of energy. That's what's happening to multiplied thousands of pastors right now in the culture. Why is God letting that happen? Because God never intended a pastor or a team of pastors to be the only burden bearers in the body of Christ. Their job is to train the whole body to do the work of the ministry. But what we've got in America and in other parts of the world, mostly though in the West, is a church structure that with paid professionals doing the work uh, of the church, doing what the church should be doing while the church doesn't do anything. The joy of the Lord is our strength. First Chronicles chapter 16, verse 27, glory and honor are in his presence. Strength and joy are in his place. The joy of the Lord strengthens the whole body to do the whole job. And if you look in the story of Nehemiah, you see that the whole people of God build the wall, not just the paid professionals. This is a prophetic image of the fulfillment of Ephesians chapter 4, the one new man that is fully in the stature of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now prophetically, Jeremiah 31 verses 11 through 14 is a picture of God's intention for the fulfillment of, of the maturity of the body of Christ. Yes, this is idealistic, but it's also prophecy. It's also what Jesus died for. It's what Jesus said would happen. This is our destiny. This is where we're headed. And it's not for some millennial kingdom or necessarily after the resurrection. I think that's that's partly what's keeping us from walking in any of the kingdom realities that we are so lacking. For the Lord has redeemed Jacob and ransomed him from the hand of him that was stronger than he. Have you been ransomed from evil that was stronger than you? I have too. Therefore they shall come and sing in the height of Zion and shall flow together to the goodness of the Lord for wheat and for wine and their soul shall be as a watered garden and they shall not sorrow any more at all. Then shall the virgin rejoice in the dance, both young men and old men together. For I will turn their mourning into joy and I will comfort them, and they shall rejoice from their sorrow, and I will satiate their souls, the souls of the priests, with fatness, and my people shall be satisfied with my goodness, says the Lord. Isaiah 51 verse 11. Therefore shall the redeemed of the Lord return and come with singing unto Zion, and everlasting joy shall be upon their heads. They shall obtain gladness and joy, and sorrow and mourning shall flee away. Now certainly this does relate to Revelation chapter 21, when he will wipe away all tears from their eyes, and there will be no more death, and no more sorrow, no more pain. But if you can't put everything off to the end of the age. We need this anointing now. 
Isaiah chapter 61, which Jesus quoted in Luke chapter 4. He said, this is now fulfilled in your ears. And what was it that was fulfilled? The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he's anointed me to preach deliverance to the poor, the recovery of sight to the blind, the opening of prison to those that are bound, to preach the acceptable year of the Lord. And then uh, if you read that in its context in Isaiah He says, he gave me beauty for ashes, the oil of joy for mourning, the garment of praise in the place of the spirit of heaviness, that I might be a tree of righteousness planted by the Lord so his name is glorified. Now, there's an end time attack on joy. In Joel chapter 1, verses 1 through 5, we have a picture of this demonic attack. Joel chapter 2 is a picture of the restoration of that joy. And Joel chapter 3 is the close of the age and the wrap-up of history on the earth as it has been and the beginning of the kingdom of God fully reigning on the earth. In Joel chapter 1, verses 1 through 5, an army of insects has destroyed the land. Addiction is rampant. Verse 10, the field is wasted, the land mourns, The wheat, the wine, and the oil is gone. The harvest is perishing. Verse 12, because joy is withered away from the sons of men. Are they drunkards? Well, they're drunkards because they're addicts. Why are they addicts? Because joy is withered away from the sons of men. See, when joy is not there, addiction is the only thing people can turn to to try to fill the hole that they can never fill. Verse 11, the harvest is perishing because of it. See, when we're all addicted, the harvest is perishing. Verse 12, joy is withered away from the sons of men. Sorrow will bring repentance and the restoration of joy. When you reach a point where your your heart is broken over this scenario that I just described, that Joel just described, that is our present culture, Christian culture included, Rend your heart now and not your garments. Turn to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and of great kindness, and he's eager to relent and not to punish. Verse 19, look, I will send you wheat and wine and oil, and you shall be satisfied. I'll fill the void that's caused you to become addicts, and I will not make you a a reproach to the world anymore. Verse 23 and 24, be glad then you children of Zion and rejoice in the Lord your God for he has given you the former rain moderately but will cause to come down for you the rain, the former rain and the latter rain in the first month. If you know anything about the agricultural year of Israel, the former rain is likened to Pentecost. The latter rain is the final outpouring before the close of the age. And he says, in the close of the age, I'm going to send you the power of Pentecost, but in the fullness of the end time outpouring, so that what you saw in the first month is super, super multiplied at the end of the age, and the floors shall be full of wheat, and the vats will overflow with wine and oil, and I will restore, I will restore. What is it that he will restore? He will restore everything that the locust and the canker worm and the caterpillar, that army of the demonic that has come in and eaten away the souls of men. He will restore all those things. Now, if you live under the terrible, dreadful, hopeless scenario of a dispensationalist definition of Scripture that has everything all chopped up so that God can't do what he just promised he would do because that was only for another dispensation. And all we've got left at the close of the age is to hope for a rapture so we can fly out of here when God has called us to take the nations. Then you need to go back and restudy what the scriptures really have to say about the close of the age, not only with reference to the whole body of Christ and to the world that we're supposed to be reaching, but in reference to you. He's, he wants to restore you, every part of you. All the, all the parts the enemy has stolen. You don't have to wait necessarily for the resurrection. You know, Paul, in, in, in Philippians chapter 3, Paul talks about pursuing to know Jesus in such a way that he can be a participant in what he calls the out-resurrection, 
What is the out resurrection? You won't see that in the in the translations in English. But in the Greek, and I guess the reason the translations don't put it in there is because people don't really know what to do with it. What is the out resurrection? Well, the only interpretation I know to give it is it is a work of resurrection power in the people of God that precedes the resurrection. There was an out-resurrection on the day Jesus rose from the dead. Who were they? They were old covenant saints that came up out of the graves. They're what the Old Testament prophecies called the first fruits. These were the, these were the first fruits. The first fruits were those who came up out of the graves. In Matthew chapter uh, 27, uh, I think it's like verse 52, 53. I don't think I've ever heard a sermon on it. People don't know what to do with it. They don't know how to interpret it. Well, there's no interpretation for it. Jesus rose from the dead, and when he did, a whole bunch of people rose with him as the first fruits of them that sleep. And so this out-resurrection is the manifestation of the power of God, of resurrection power flowing through his people before the resurrection. It's like King David he, he reached over into the new covenant and took hold of the relationship to God that was only going to be manifested in the new covenant. David just reached out and took hold of it and pulled it to where he was or pulled himself to where it was, however you want to interpret it. And so the tabernacle of David manifests uh, uh, freedom to enter into the holiest of all that was only really fully opened to the whole world when the veil of the temple was rent. God just loved it. David did that, and God loved it. Uh, that's too much to get into here, I guess. But the point is, there is a there is a freedom in the in the presence of God. There is a joy in the presence of God. There is a union with Him that He longs for you and me to enter into. You can have as much as you want. Enoch walked with God and got so close to Him, God raptured him. God took him. Uh, he's a picture of the out resurrection, and so Paul says in Ephesians, in, uh, excuse me, in, in uh, Philippians chapter three, he's. Well, let me. I think we need to read it. I, I don't want to misquote it, and I don't want to leave any of it out because it's too important. Joel is a picture of desolation by the devil, restoration by the power of the Spirit. And finally, Joel closes with multitudes, multitudes in the valley of decision. For the day of the Lord is near in the valley of decision. God restores his church. Then he brings the nations into line for the final confrontation between the kingdom of God and the kingdom of darkness. And the people of God enter into that period of history full of joy and restored. Did you get what I just said? The people of God enter into that period of history full of joy and restored. And Paul intimates that that's what he's pursuing here in uh, Philippians chapter 3, beginning at verse 10. I'm going to read this. I want to I begin in verse 8. I'm reading this from the Amplified because I love the amplification of it. We need the amplification. He says, I count everything as lost compared to the priceless privilege, the overwhelming preciousness, the surpassing worth and supreme advantage of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord and of progressively becoming more deeply and intimately acquainted with him, of perceiving and recognizing and understanding him more fully and more clearly. For his sake, I have lost everything and consider it all to be mere rubbish, refuse, dregs, in order that I may gain Christ, the Messiah, and that I may actually be found and known as in him, not having any self-achieved righteousness that can be called my own based on my obedience to the law's demands, ritual uprightness and supposed right standing with God acquired by ritual, but possessing that genuine righteousness which comes through faith in Christ the anointed, and truly right standing with God, which comes from God by saving faith. For my determined purpose is that I may know him, that I may progressively become more deeply and intimately acquainted with him, perceiving and recognizing and understanding the wonders of his person more strongly and more clearly, 
that I may in that same way come to know the power outflowing from his resurrection. That's the way this translation deals with that. The power outflowing from his resurrection. That's the out, what the Greek text calls the out-resurrection, which exerts its power over believers that I may so share his sufferings as to be continually transformed in spirit into his likeness, even into his death, in the hope that if possible, I may attain to spiritual and moral resurrection that lifts me out from among the dead. That's the out-resurrection even while still in this physical body. Paul says, I'm not satisfied to just be saved and filled with the Spirit and walk in a reasonable amount of spiritual maturity. I'm not satisfied just to overcome a few uh, bad habits and wrong character flaws in, in my behavior. I'm not satisfied for my life to just be a matter of no longer doing wrong. I want to so move toward the good that it becomes the overpowering, overflowing reality in and to and through me so that I might even manifest characteristics of the resurrection before the resurrection. Not that I've already attained this, he says. Well, if I said that, you wouldn't have to wonder. You know, you're right, Clay, you haven't attained it. Or have already been made perfect. He says, I haven't, I haven't attained this, but I press on to lay hold and and I've, and make my own that for which Christ Jesus has laid hold of me and made me his own. I'm going to hold to Jesus and desire from him the fulfillment of what he laid hold on me and desired for me to have fulfilled. Are you are you getting that? This is joy unspeakable and full of glory. This is what gives men and women the power to face the worst hell has to manifest. And if you go back again to Joel chapters 1, 2, and 3, which I've just referred to briefly, chapter 1 is desolation. We all know about desolation. We all know what the canker worm and the caterpillar and all that, we all know, we know what the devil has done. Chapter 2 is repentance, which leads to restoration. And God says, I'll, I'll so... I won't just restore you. I want to pour onto you a super abundance so that I'll give you the, the power of the former rain and the latter rain in the first month. I'll pour on you everything. I'll, I'll do exceeding abundantly above all you can even ask or think uh, beyond just you know giving you your prayer language, as great as that is and as wonderful as that is, but beyond uh, giving you manifestations of gifts of the Spirit as wonderful as they are. How about if I take you to a point where you're so in union with me that my Spirit flows through you and does all those things and more so that the words of Jesus become fulfilled. You will do greater things than I've done because I'm going to the Father. Okay. Then finally that takes us to chapter 3, which is the judgment of the earth and the confrontation between light and darkness. How are we going to endure that? Well, we're not just going to endure it. We're going to race towards it with vigor, with excitement, with joy, because uh, we have been restored. Our joy is our strength, and we're able to, to move into battle. David says, by my God, I can run through a troop and leap over a wall. You've taught my hands to war and my fingers to fight. Greater is he that's in me than he that's in the world. They overcame the devil by the blood of the Lamb and the word of their testimony, and they loved not their life even to death. How did they love not their life even to death? Because they'd already died. They'd already passed through death unto resurrection. They were walking in resurrection power even in their physical body. That, that's how the early church faced martyrdom. It wasn't in fear and trembling. It was with a, a power and glory. Now, I know there's stories interwoven in the history of the church uh, that are not powerful and glorious, and some of them, of them are very sad. But that's the seed. What's the full-grown tree look like? Anyway, I'm getting into way too much that, more than I can cover in uh, adequately in this this context. But I, I hope you get the vision. You can't balance a message while you're giving it, or you might as well not give it. I know there's extenuating situations and circumstances here, but 
I don't want to talk about that right now. You already know those extenuating circumstances. Romans chapter 8 says the whole creation is groaning and travailing, longing for what? The manifestation of the full-grown sons of God. The creation is longing for our manifestation of sonship, the manifestation of our full-grown identity in Christ. And how is that going to come? Well, Psalm 110 says it'll come through the womb of darkness into the glory of the morning. My people shall make of themselves a free will offering in the day I gather my troops. How will they do it? They'll pass through the womb, which is dark and pressured. What is the birth canal? It's a place of darkness and pressure. And through that birth canal, the pressure is what manifests the birth The pressure you're under now is what is working to manifest your birthing into the light of the glory of of morning. And all creation is longing, cheering you on, longing for that day. Creation is saying, please, please, come to maturity. Please come to birth. And so Peter says, we hasten the day of the Lord. We don't hasten to the day of the Lord as if the day of the Lord is a fixed event and we're moving towards it. Peter implies that we can hasten the day of the Lord by getting on with it in our own manifestation of our mature sonship. So how is that glory eventually manifested? It's, it's through the mundane, everyday, normal, day-by-day life of love and sharing in the context of the people of God. It is living in the family of God. Uh, what has all this been about all these years? Uh, these, these, some of you, I know because I hear from you, you're, you're isolated, you're alone. You live in parts of the country uh, or in your country or in America where there's very little fellowship, where there's, there's not much that you can depend on. Has uh, God just forgotten you? Of course not. What is it he's bringing you through? What is it he's teaching you? What is he calling you to? Some of you may, may be finding that you're not supposed to go look for a fellowship. You're supposed to begin to birth one. Some of you may be apostles and didn't know you were. Maybe God wants to get you pregnant, so to speak, with a move of the Holy Spirit right there where you are so that instead of lamenting not having fellowship, you begin to see people born in the kingdom of God right and left and begin to nurture and care for them the best you can. And before you know it, you see an emerging body of believers there. you got to get envisioned with that. And like I said, let the Lord uh, put that in your spirit, the womb of your spirit, and begin to begin to travail and give birth to it in intercessory prayer. Uh, you got people around you that are godless. Are you praying for them? Are you interceding for them? Are you praying that the Holy Spirit will begin to penetrate their wall, and then at the right time you have the right word that opens the door for them to to come to Christ. Uh, all, all of you who listen to us on the re- regular uh, messages month by month, I have the deepest love and respect and appreciation for you. You are who uh, supply the uh, resources necessary for Mary and I to be able to do what we do. And there, over the last few weeks and months, really I guess over the last year or so, I've become aware that there was a specific call on all of us for intercession. That anointing and responsibility to stand in the gap and make up the hedge so that God could spare the land from destruction. And that anointing and call is still upon us. And I hear from many of you who who tell me of things the Holy Spirit has guided you into concerning prayer for the nation and prayer for the nations and prayer for... uh, the people of God. But I I sense the Lord adding to that call now. And again, nobody made me uh, the voice of God for you, so I'm not trying to impose this on anybody. 
But for those of you who have ears to hear and believe that it is from the Lord, take it for what it's worth. I think the Lord is saying to all of us, beyond the call of prayer, he wants us to begin to pray for the coming forth of the body of Christ in maturity. For some of you, that may mean beginning to pray for the birth of a body of believers where you are. Uh, how do you know but what your living room might not be uh, the, the place where that is birthed? Or if you're already in a church, but the church is not doesn't have ears to hear and is slow uh, to, to move into the things of God. Maybe your, your prayer anointing and your call is to do what Paul says in Galatians 4.19. He says to the Galatians, who he was so frustrated with because of their legalism and stodginess, I, I travail in birth again for you until Christ is formed in you. So if you're in a body of believers that's just not getting on with it or they're getting off in error or they're not even getting off in error because they're not even moving enough to get off into anything. They can't get off in error because they're not getting off their backside to do anything. Pray. Begin to cry out to God. Begin to, to give birth to the purposes of God where you are. If you don't sense that that's upon you and you're in a place where you're drying up with them and dying with them, maybe the Lord's calling you to get out of the death knell that they're under and uh, and seek him about where you're supposed to be. But the next thing the Lord is speaking to my heart about, and I believe I'm to pass this on to any of you who can hear it, is to begin to give birth to the body of Christ where you are, whether it's in the congregation you're already in, and that doesn't mean running around driving people crazy and buttonholing people and trying to force feed them. And I don't have to tell you that. This audience is too mature to have to be told that. But it is time to get the vision for the coming forth of the body of Christ. And that means not just a, a square building where a man or woman stands up front once a week and talks to people who are staring at the back of one another's heads. It means giving birth to the body of Christ. And that may mean uh, dinners once a week in your home or somebody's place. Maybe somebody's place of business, a restaurant. you got a friend who, who sa- says, you know what, why can't we just have a get-together once a week after closing hours and uh, just share the Word of God together and share the body and blood of Christ together and sing together and worship together. Somebody has a, a psalm, one has a tongue, one has an interpretation, one has a revelation. You know, nobody has to preach. Uh, I know I'm scaring some of you to death. You say, well, that can get weird. I'd rather try to follow God and get weird than sit dead at the hour of harvest. The Bible says uh, a son who's asleep in the harvest is a shame to his father. I do not want to be asleep in the harvest. And I want to tell you something, folks. The harvest is not in Sunday morning church services. There are exceptions to that, I know. Thank God there are. I talked to a pastor a few days ago. They just baptized 75 people on their, in their Sunday morning service from conversions. That's a wonderful thing. I thank God for it. But it's the great exception. It's the great exception. So the, the move of the Spirit is in the marketplace. The move of the Spirit is out there among the people. And sharing together the things of God and building together the house of God has to do with building not just conversions, but here's my main point in closing. It's building the relationships after the conversion, after the new birth, after they come to know Jesus. And I asked a question in a previous session, which comes first, introducing people to Jesus or introducing people to the body? Well, I don't think there's an answer to that. Sometimes introducing someone to the body is how you introduce them to Jesus. Uh, Tony Campolo told a wonderful, wonderful story years ago about this very thing when he tells about a street ministry, a man named Joe who was just out amongst the poor, taking care of the poor and taking care of indigent people and hurting people. He didn't preach to people as much as he manifested the character and nature of Christ. And uh, one of the men that he ministered to was was dying, and somebody asked him, you know, have you have you have you met Jesus? 
And the man said, I don't know. Who is he? Is he anything like Joe? Now, I know some evangelicals will just bust a gut over that. Oh, that's terrible. Well, is it terrible? I'll tell you what's more terrible than Joe manifesting the grace of Jesus so much that the dying person would rather meet Joe than meet Jesus who he doesn't know yet because he's meeting Jesus in Joe. Let me tell you what's terrible. Not the story I just told. That's not terrible. That's wonderful. What's terrible is when people meet Christians who do claim Jesus and they've given such a bad impression of the real Jesus that people don't want either the church or Jesus. That's what's terrible. Well, I'm preaching to the choir. You know this already. Let me just calm down and try to talk to us in the few minutes we've got left. How does this look? How, how does this practically look? Uh, we've, we've looked at the psychodynamics of, of joy, and we've looked at the psychological background of it all. We've looked at the biblical background of it all. Now we've looked at the prophetic picture of what God wants to bring us to. Now, how do you do it? How do you practically do it? Well, let me just say this. First of all, obviously, it's going to take a whole next session to answer that question. And I'm not going to be able to answer it. And it's not what I do give you will be sloppy. It will not be neat and pretty. It will not have five easy steps to fulfilling the kingdom of God in the earth. It will not be uh, something that you can categorize and organize and put in practice fully. It's messy. Dealing with people is messy. Working with people and their hardships and difficulties is messy. And this is why nobody can do it alone. So you, you got to be rooted and grounded in Christ, and then you got to be rooted and grounded in each other. By the way, that very phrase, rooted and grounded, the root is Christ, the ground is each other. We're rooted and grounded. Rooted in Christ, grounded in each other. And so who do you know? You say, well, I don't know anybody. Go find somebody and turn them into a prayer partner. Get them to pray with you. And out of the two of you praying together, God will begin to add to it. And out of those he adds to you, God will begin to send you hurt people who who four or five or six of you have to help along because no one of you can do it. And then they get strong and they begin to have their joy strength restored by being with people who love them and are glad to be with them. And out of that being glad to be together, uh, an atmosphere is created that invites people to be drawn in to the love of God. Okay, I got to quit. We've got to leave this for the next session. God bless you. Thank you for enduring.